I don't know just how long some of you folk in this meeting have known the Lord. It's a great thing to know the Lord. I was a lad at 21 years old when I was brought to a knowledge of the truth as it is in our Lord Jesus Christ. And in those early days, there were kind of days of heaven upon earth when the smile of God was upon the soul. The Lord's presence was a felt reality among his people. And in comparison to these days, it was almost like days of heaven upon earth, times of revival, times of blessing. But as one goes on in the Christian life, things begin to happen that could be most discouraging to the child of God. And we're living in such times at this present day. Easy for us to be disillusioned, disappointed with the things of the Lord, disappointed with churches, disappointed with menfolk and professed believers to such a degree that at times when the devil comes in and he says, you know, time to quit, time to quit. And then we begin to imagine how wonderful it would have been if we could have only lived in the days of the reformers or the Puritan fathers or the early Methodist fathers when God's blessing was upon Zion. Sometimes I've asked people, what particular area or epoch would you like to live in if you were given the opportunity? What's your ideal of the model church? You ask a brethren, brother, he said, well, Plymouth, when Derby came on the scene and things were changed, it was wonderful in those days. Reformed man would say, I'd like to live in Geneva and sit at the feet of Calvin. A Calvinistic Methodist would say, well, I wished I lived in the days of Whitfield and especially Howell Harris and Rawlins when they moved with power in the Principality of Wales. This is my ideal. But you know, friend, the model church is not Geneva, it's not Plymouth, it's not Epworth where Wesley started, but it's in the Acts of the Apostles. And I want us to turn tonight as the Lord should enable me to show you some of the salient features of the early church. When we say, oh, if I lived in those days, we wouldn't have the problems that we have now. But you would most certainly have had problems. And so I'm turning tonight to Acts chapter 1 and some of the verses in Acts chapter 2 just to show you some of the features of the early church, the model church. And the first thing I noted in meditating upon this theme was this. The early church, the model church, was a feeble company. A feeble company. It wasn't made up of spiritual giants. In our reading for tonight, we have the number of the company gathered here in this early church. We're told there in the 15th verse, well, there were just 120, perhaps a few more. So it wasn't a mega church. 
It wasn't a church that was filled to capacity and thousands of people coming together and to worship the Lord. Just a handful. They were feeble. When you look at the number. And then when you look at some of the names in the 13th verse down to the 15th verse. Who were these people? There's Peter there. What a washout he had been. He denied the Lord with oaths and curses. And if he lived today, there would be no place for him in the ministry in future days. There was this Thomas, this doubting Thomas. He was not in his place when Jesus came. And then when he saw the Lord, he was doubting and questioning the Son of God. Friends, we need to get a grip of this. And you remember in John chapter 20, when they gathered before Pentecost, they were trembling from head to toe. They were terrified. They were hiding behind closed doors. And so they were just a feeble company. And yet, I must be quick to say this. At the same time, beloved, they were seeking to be faithful to the Lord. And God wants you and I in this our day to be faithful to him. There was a persistency with these people. In the 14th verse, these all continued, with regardless of the failings and the weaknesses of some of the brethren, they continued. They were persevering. They were going on. And not only persevering, they were purposeful. It says they continued, if you know the word, with one accord. They were purposeful. They had a purpose in life, a purpose for their gathering together to worship God, to disseminate the truth of God, to live for God. And if they were purposeful, well, we know from the 14th verse, they were praying company. He goes on to tell us they were in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. They're a church who believed in waiting upon the Lord. In our church in Blackburn with the lockdown, we've been ceasing to hold the prayer meeting before the service on a Sunday morning and a Sunday evening as you once had. But when you begin to neglect the place of prayer in the gatherings of the Lord's people, then you're going to be in serious trouble sooner or later. You're going to lose that power and that touch of God upon the soul that enables you to be steadfast when all hell is let loose. Yes, they were a praying company. And no matter what men thought of them, they were a precious company. A precious company. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, you remember our Lord speaking of the churches in Asia Minor. He speaks of them as being candlesticks, golden candlesticks. Speaking of the preciousness of the people of the Lord. And friend, no matter what the world thinks of us tonight as they look in, we're precious in his eyes. You say, well, how can he be sure of this? Because I know that Christ loved the church. I know that Christ died for the church. I know that Christ is living for the church tonight in glory. He ever liveth, it says. To make intercession for us is living for us. Because we're everything to him. And not only is he living for us, he's thank God he's praying for us. And he's preparing a place for us, John 14, that where he is, we also may be. 
He longs for our presence. He longs to see our face and hear our voice. And he's coming back for us. And you know, the Lord Jesus can't forget us. We can forget him. If I'd have been in proper form this morning, I'd been tired today. I've been under stress and terrific pressure this past week. But you know, in that 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when our Lord tells us we're to remember him as we come around the table, what a rebuke it is that he's got to appoint the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that we might remember him as if we're in danger of forgetting him. Forgetting him. What a carry-on the church has become. But you'll never forget the likes of you and I because we're upon his breastplate like the names of the children of Israel upon the breastplate of the high priest. And my name is upon his heart tonight. And he can see me there. He knows all about me, my circumstances, my everything. And he says, you're precious to me. And so though it was a feeble company, Thank God they were going on with the Lord and they were precious to the Lord notwithstanding all their failings and all their idiosyncrasies because they were covered by the blood of Christ and by the righteousness of the Son of God imputed to them. And you're looking at a man tonight, friend, I'm washed in the blood. You're looking at a man tonight who's clothed in the righteousness of God's own Son. One of my earlier colleagues was a Presbyterian minister in Northern Ireland. Going back many years when we opened our church in Oman. A man called the Reverend Alec Campbell. He used to be in that church in Camberwell in London. He was a Scotsman, we're forgiven for that. But you know, we were opening the church this afternoon, this Saturday afternoon, and I was with Alec in the car park, and I said, Brother, I said, I, I wish I could get a, a more holy and godly and Christ-like before I, I die, before I come to the end of life's journey. And he stopped me. He says, Norman, he says, you're as ready to go now as you ever will be through the blood and righteousness of Christ. And we're looking here at these people, but still they were a feeble company. And we're a feeble company. Let's not deceive ourselves. Let's not think we're high and mighty that we're among that reformed group. Friend, I'll tell you, we're a feeble company. That's all we are. But not in the Lord's eyes. And if this early church was a feeble company, this early church, they had a flawed testimony. A flawed testimony. What a terrible thing when we lose our testimony for God. And this flawed testimony is seen in two things. And the first thing is this. There was apostasy of one of the apostles, verse 16 to 17. You know the man there called Judas. This man, he obtained part of this ministry. But this man apostatized. And I don't have to go into detail. And he went to his own place. He was a man who'd never truly been born again. It wasn't the case. He was saved and lost. If a man saved God will keep that man. No matter how far he goes, God will bring him back if he belongs to him. This Judas, there was an apostasy. And if there was apostasy, the testimony is also seen, flawed testimony, with the publicity. Verse, four, verse 19, it was known unto all the dwellers 
at Jerusalem, insomuch as a field is called in their proper tongue the field of the blood. And so every time they walked past this field, they remembered that this field had been bought with the blood of this man, Judas. He died in that field. His bowels gushed out. He found himself in an eternal hell. But people were talking about it. They speak about the church. They said, the church, the church, look at them. Apostasy, this Judas, he's apostatized. Three years with Christ, preaching the word. He's apostatized. Look at the publicity. Everyone's talking about it. They all know about Judas. They all know about the mess that we're in. And so they had a flawed testimony. And you and I have a flawed testimony because there's not one of us without sin and failing and inconsistency. Each one of us. Some of us are more painful of this than others. But this is a picture of the the model church, this early church, feeble company, flawed testimony. What's going to happen next? And then another thing about this early church, they had a fallible ministry. A fallible ministry. You see, Judas was gone. And the need to replace him by someone else. And so the apostles get together to deal with this matter. Now in our reading in Acts chapter 1, there's a procedure. First of all, they wanted to act according to the scriptures. Verse 20. And so it is written in the book of Psalms, let his habitation be desolate, and let no man dwell therein, and his bishopric, underline it, his eldership, his ministry, let another take. Do you get the picture? There's a procedure now. They want to appoint a replacement for Judas. And so they're acting this procedure according to the word of God. They want to maintain the standard. As you go on in these, these verses, in verse 21 to 22, he must be one who's seen the Lord Jesus after his literal resurrection from the dead. And then there's a strategy. They present two names to the congregation. Two names. They pray about this matter. They seek the face of the Lord. And then they cast lots, which was often the practice amongst the early Methodist fathers. And then after casting lots, they appointed Matthias, you see, to be a replacement for Judas. Well, that was their procedure. And we have procedures in our churches how we deal with these situations. And we like to be, think we're biblical. We like to think we're spiritual. And we go to the Word of God and, and we go down this line and we think, well, this is the right thing to do. Well, this is the procedure. But there's a problem here. And the problem with this case here, these apostles got the wrong man. This Matthias wasn't the right man. I believe that Paul, Saul of Tarsus, was God's man. And that tells me clear and explicit that presbyteries and sessions and commissions and all the lot don't always get it right. They don't always get it right because we're dealing with fallible men. Fallible men, unless they think they've achieved the status and attained the status of the Pope of Rome. He says he's infallible. 
But I'll tell you, none of us are infallible. We're fallible men. And the sooner we realize this, and the sooner we recognize it, the better. Well, how could they go forward in this situation? The feeble company. Flawed testimony. Stumped. And then this, well, this fallible ministry. What are we going to turn to? Who are we going to turn to? What are we going to do? Well, I'll tell you, there's a God in heaven. There's a God in heaven who's working out his eternal purposes for his people and for his cause and for his church. And that brings me to another thought tonight. The future prosperity. Regardless of all this Failure, fallibility, test money gone. God blessed them and God prospered them. God prospered them. And this prospering, well, is seen in Acts chapter 2. You see, friend, they didn't allow this situation to bring them down to such a degree that they felt like calling it a day and they began to lose heart and quit and that's what the devil wants us to do. That's what he wants me to do in Blackburn. That's what he wants you folk to do here in Sheffield. He wants us to, to quit and call it a day and lose heart and bring about an awful catastrophe in the name of the Lord amongst the people of God. But the future prosperity here is seen in this, first of all. As I look into Acts chapter 2, there was an amazing unity. Verse 1 of Acts 2. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They didn't allow the difficulties among them to bring about division. Division. Division amongst the people of God is an awful thing. I don't mind how low we may get in Blackburn, but if there's division, we're snookered. Division amongst the brethren... No wonder David said, Behold how good and pleasant it is to dwell together with brethren, dwelling together in unity. When he says behold, it's something that's amazing. Different temperaments, different backgrounds, different personalities. And yet there's a unity. And there was a unity here. It was an amazing unity, especially in the light of the situation. And the Lord's promised that there the blessing of the Lord is. And we need unity. And if I've wronged a brother or wronged a sister, I've got to put the thing right. And I've got to have the grace and humility to go and sort the thing out and say, Brother, I'm sorry I was wrong. Or if they should come to me and apologize, and I can only say, Brother, I forgive you. We're only sinners, the best of us. There was an amazing unity. And then in this church, regardless of his failings, there was a supernatural ability. In verses 2 and 4, suddenly, and underline that word, God can change a situation suddenly. In a moment of time, there can be a change when God moves in amongst us. Suddenly, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. The Holy Ghost, you see, was the descent of the Spirit of God. It says they were all filled, brother, with the Holy Ghost. Have you been filled with the Holy Ghost? I'm not talking about Pentecostalism. They were filled. That means 
They were under the control now of the spirits of God. The spirits of God had come from above and had taken hold of them. And that's what you and I need. Yes, and they were there. And it was a wonderful thing, this supernatural ability to such a degree they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. They began to speak in tongues and the Spirit gave them utterance. We're not going to go down that road tonight. But I'll tell you, a supernatural ability was given unto them. In other words, there were things that now began to happen in this church that could only be accounted for in terms of God. In terms of God. There's a God in heaven. We don't worship some mere theory. This is not some mere academic exercise, a doctrinal nicety. God's a living God. And God can come down. And we need the Lord. And if we've not got the Lord, we may as well close the doors, sing the doxology, and call it a day. But this supernatural ability, God came down. God had promised to come down in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you. We need the Holy Ghost to come. Not in some charismatic way, but in a real powerful way. As in those early revivals in the Christian church, they were given a supernatural ability. And then they were given a wonderful victory. Verse 41, which you've not read, chapter 1 here. Verse 41, chapter 2. 3,000 were converted in one day. In a moment of time, 3,000 lives. This, this, this wasn't some flash in the pan. These weren't empty professors. These weren't those who were caught up in some emotional upheaval and they made some quick decision. These people, they were truly converted. It wasn't just the head. You can have the head right and the heart not right. God had changed their hearts. He'd come. And you know what happens when God comes and saves a man? Do you know what happens, brother? I'll tell you what happens. Number one, all our sins are pardoned. Number two, the righteousness of God is put to our account. Number three, the ruling power of sin is broken. Number four, and I'll tell you, we're indwelt by the Holy Ghost, the power of the Spirit, and we have a new nature. And this happened to this company 3,000 in one day. And if you say, well, difficult for me to accept that and believe that, well, the rest of this chapter 2 makes that clear. This company, as I say, their future prosperity, it depended upon the God of heaven. God of heaven. And there are these things that mark their conversion. Well, they were faithful. Verse 42 of chapter 2. They continued steadfast in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. They were steadfast. They were faithful. They were interested in doctrine. Yes, it's important. Right doctrine. They were interested in getting down before God. They were interested in having fellowship one with another. It wasn't some mere preaching station. They loved to be amongst one another. It was a lovely thing. And if these people were faithful, these converts, they were most certainly fearful. Verse 43, the fear came upon every soul. Fear. Fear. What a powerful statement that is, brethren. Fear. What do we know today about the fear of God? Certain things we do say and 
act and it's because we haven't got the fear of God before us as we ought. This company, they were faithful, but they were also fearful. But no further, they were supernatural. I think we've overreacted against the charismatic movement and all them abominations. He tells me here in this 43rd verse, many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And we said to, well, that's not for today. God's for today. God's for today. And God can do wonders for us. In your situation that from the human perspective, there's no way out. But he can still roll back the waters of the mighty Red Sea. This is our God. There's nothing too hard for the Lord. And we need to grasp this and we need to believe it. And we need to get down before God and say, the devil's been at work. He's been seeking to wreck the church and scatter the sheep. But oh God, we're, we're pleading for divine intervention. Whatever it is, it's beyond our ability. But there's nothing too hard for thee. And it was supernatural. And these believers not only believed in the supernatural, they believed in the practical. Verse 44, down to that 45th verse. What do we read there? All that believed were together, had all things common, sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Underline that word need. We saw a brother in need. Oh God, I've got to do what I can to help my brother. He's in need, Lord. He's in need. And they went out of the way to help and to assist one another. They were very, very practical. And you know, you run your eyes down to 46. They were very spiritual. But they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. It's nice to go from house to house, isn't it? Nice to visit the homes of the Lord's people. But when they visited the Lord's people, they weren't there to talk about one another. It says they were there breaking bread house to house with gladness and singleness of heart. That's lovely. Like those in Malachi's day, in the day of declension, they that feared the Lord, but they spake often one with another. And they thought upon his name. Isn't it lovely to think upon the name of the Lord Jesus? His name shall be called Wonderful. And all those lovely names of the Son of God. But the best name of all is Jesus, isn't it? How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in our believer's ear. And there they were, this church here. They're spiritual people. And I'm troubled sometimes when we look at the groups that we're in. There seems to be a lack of spirituality. A lack of heart for God a lack of close walking with him, a lack of a desire for holiness and godliness. And then, you know, they were thankful. Verse 47, praising God, praising God. It's a wonderful thing to praise the Lord. I don't mean empty cliches when people say, oh, praise the Lord. They don't even think about the thing when they say it. But a genuine heart filled with praise. We've so much to praise the Lord for tonight. I praise the Lord that I'm still going on with God. After all the trials and testings, 
after all my failings and I look at my own depravity and my weaknesses and my inconsistencies and we could go on but I'm praising the Lord tonight that he ever met with me in the way that he ever quickened my soul that he ever washed me in the redeemer's blood that he ever brought me to that place when I could say I know a fount where sins are washed away I know a place where night is turned to day Burdens are lifted, blind eyes made to see. There's a wonder-working power in the blood of Calvary. Need to get back to Calvary, brethren. Need to get back to Calvary. I've been exercised about this. <coughs> and I've been thinking I need to prepare some fresh messages centered upon the blood of Christ. When did you last hear some messages on the blood of our Lord Jesus? A precious, precious blood. And there they are. They're praising God. They're thankful. They're so thankful. Praising God and having favor of all the people. And lastly, they were mindful, you see, that the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. They weren't patting themselves on the back and saying, I'm a wonderful minister. I'm a wonderful elder. I'm a wonderful member of this church. Oh, yes, God's blessing us here, but, you know, it's all due to me. No, no, it's in spite of what they were, in spite of that. And so God, thank God, they were a feeble company, like some of our churches are. They're a flawed testimony, and which one of us could stand up here tonight under the searchlight of heaven and our weaknesses and failings written upon the wall would be terrified you'd be crawling under the carpet. If you had one, you'd have to get a carpet in here. To crawl under it. And they had a fallible ministry. The ministers weren't fallible, infallible men. They were men of like passions with you and I. But thank God they had a future prosperity because they had the Lord. All that we need tonight is God. That's all we need. We need nothing else. And he says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. And when God comes down and God intervenes. In my early days as a student for the Free Presbyterian Church in Northern Ireland, I was in my third year, was it? And I was walking along what is known as the Albert Bridge on the Albert Bridge Road in Belfast. Full of excitement about the things of the Lord. You know how it is when you're young in the faith? Just a young chap, 30 years old, 29 years old, and walking in front of me, there's a man, he's walking with a limp, and his arm there is a bit of a rope. I felt so sorry for this chap. So I just quickened my pace and got alongside of him. I thought, I'm going to speak to this man about the Savior. And as I looked, turned to him, he turned to me, and he spoke first. He says, you know, he says, how are you doing? I said, I'm okay, thank you. I said, how are you? He says, I've been down to the shipyard, Howland and Wolf in Belfast, to see my old workmates. He said, I had a stroke a few years ago. It's impaired my speech. I can't use my left arm, and I've got this foot here in the caliper. He says, but, you know, I go down there every Friday morning to witness to my old former workmates. He says, but you know, he says, when I see him, that's the Lord Jesus, he said, he'll put this right. He'll put this right. Friend, 
when we see him, brother, you put it right. The Lord will put it right. He can put our homes right. He can put our church right. Thank God he can put me right. We all need to be put right, don't we? And the Lord's not finished with you yet. I tell them in Blackburn, the Lord's not finished with me yet. But when I see him, as he is, thank God that will be it. Transformed into his likeness. But thank God my sin's finished at the place called Calvary. So let us thank God tonight. We have a loving God, a gracious God, who cares for us, who loves us. I often say, and I'll close with this, the Lord knows the worst about us. Glad you don't know the worst about the person at the side of you. Or that they don't know the worst about you. More importantly, he knows the worst about us. But he loves us the best. He loves us the best. This is my Jesus. And this is my friend. And I don't want to know about any other Jesus. But our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who loved us, gave himself for us.